In this episode of Ottawa Business Journal's Behind the Headlines, 40 Under 40 announced, Bryden's energy trash company gets a first client and a new vision for a 200-year-old landmark in Eastern Ontario. All this and more coming up right now. Behind the Headlines is brought to you by Nelligan Law, Ottawa's fierce, proven, and human law firm. Visit them at nelliganlaw.ca. Hello and welcome to Behind the Headlines, recorded on May 10th, 2021. I'm Michael Kern from the Ottawa Business Journal. Behind the Headlines is a regular po- pro- podcast for Moby J to explore the most popular local business stories. I'm happy to have my two colleagues from OBJ with us here today. Here is Peter Cavesi and David Sally. Welcome to you both. Peter, our first story uh, is a big one. Uh, it's a once a year story. It's a recurring story. I'm building up the the uh, the suspense here, and it's one of our our top read stories typically of the entire year. Uh, let our listeners and viewers know what we're talking about. So the Ottawa Business Journal, the Ottawa Board of Trade, just released the uh, the names of this year's 2021 uh, 40 under 40 recipients. This is really really exciting for for Ottawa Business Journal. Um, I, I think it's it's one of our our coolest initiatives of the year, just because it's a celebration of the region's rising business stars. So every year, um, OBJ, uh, the Ottawa Board of Trade, and uh, and our partners select um, just again some of those young leaders uh, who uh, are demonstrating you know business achievements, professional expertise and community uh, in, involvement. So uh, again, it's uh, it's a great moment for the entire business community to uh, to come together and uh, and celebrate uh, celebrate the achievements of uh, some people who are really just shaping the uh, the local uh, local economy. Um, what's really, really cool about this project, of course, it's really, really long-standing uh, awards. And Mike, you've been right at the center of it for, for some 20 years, both uh, with, the, with the nominations, the, uh, the, the awards uh, pro- program, uh, gala. Uh, I'm really curious, tell us, how has 40 Under 40 evolved uh, over, uh, over that time? Uh, wow, that's such a, such a good question. Um, I, I kind of, as you indicated, lost exact track of how long I've been involved. It's around 20 years. This is the 24th, maybe I'll start off by saying that, group of recipients, which means that this is pretty cool, but next year, you know, will be the 25th. So that's quite the milestone. The 25th, of course, do the math, 40 times 25 will mean we have a thousand uh, alumni. Um, so how has it changed? Um, you know, certainly if I were to speak a little bit uh, more about this year, the pandemic, no surprise, was was a uh, was a big theme uh, this year. Uh, and there were a lot of stories in the nomination process of how people were, uh, were dealing with the pandemic. Um, if we zoom out a little bit, um, I think the, the award has gotten a little bit more broad-based. I mean, principally, you know, who we're looking for uh, or the award is ideally, I guess, suited to a company founder, uh, so, you know, someone that's developed a significant business with a significant number of employees, significant revenue basis, also, you know, balancing out expertise and community, by the way. Um, I, I have seen it be a little bit more inclusive. And when I say inclusive, I mean, kind of from a sector perspective and also uh, a, a few more uh, public sector people being recognized. Uh, you know, one of the things this year is we would have seen some key association people, someone from Ottawa Tourism, uh, 
people from uh, from the uh, healthcare industries, things like that. So I guess those are you know some of the reactions. I guess the other thing that surprised me this year is that that people had time to do nominations. So we didn't see any dip in the regular level pre pandemic level of nominations. Uh, we had close to uh, 300 people, I think it was 280, 290 people start nominations. I think 160 finished nominations. And then uh, I do some pre-screening and hand it to an independent panel of judges. And then they took a look at 78 uh, to end up with our 40 this year. So, of, of course, I need to, to mention that uh, everyone can read the full list of recipients at uh, obj.ca. It's uh, in the uh, editor's pick box. Uh, Dave, let's let's bring you into the conversation. Uh, both you and I have served uh, stints as judges, you know, over, over the years. So we have a bit of perspective. Um, when you look at this year's list of recipients, what sort of story is it telling you about, uh, about uh, Ottawa's economy and the direction that, uh, that the city is heading in? Uh, well, Peter, I mean, uh, what's the old saying, you know, diversity is strength? Well... I certainly think that's reflected in in this year's list. I mean, as Mike uh, just alluded to, you've got uh, you've got a lot of sectors covered off here. You might automatically assume out oh, forty under forty list in Ottawa, we're going to have a lot of tech people. Well, we there are there are quite a few. I mean, obviously Shopify alone has two people on the list, two of its senior executives. Um, you've got other founders of uh, companies that I really like, like. Um, uh, uh, Noibu, which is a um, uh, which is another e-commerce company that helps uh, helps detect glitches. So you've got one of their their founders in there. Uh, Neurovine, which is a really uh, really cool kind of health tech biotech company that's doing real groundbreaking uh, research into concussion treatments. Uh, that's pretty interesting. Um, but then you've got people like Nick McRae, the president of Roxborough Bus Lines. Uh, you've got um, uh, you've you've got a senior executive uh, uh, from um, from Chio on there. You've got uh, you know you've got um, the operations manager PCL Construction. You've got all these different sectors. I mean, just about um, any aspect of the economy you want to talk about, it's there, which is I, I think bodes really well uh, for Ottawa, showing that you know. Uh, yeah, we've got real good bench strength in tech, uh, but we've also got it in a lot of other sectors as well. Uh, you know, you can never, never be too diversified when it comes to economic growth. So, uh, so I think, um, I think that really speaks, uh, um, to a, um, to a real promising future for, uh, many aspects of the local economy here. Neat. Uh, Dave, uh, thanks for this insight. I agree 100%. It's, it's quite remarkable to see all the sectors uh, reflected like that. And and that's just due to strong nominations from all those sectors, by the way. We're going to stick with you, uh, Dave, for story number two. And the person at the center of this story, I think, will be familiar with most of the people watching or listening today. And uh, that person is Rod Bryden. Rod's known uh, way back when for companies like World Heart. He was the owner of the Ottawa Senators. Uh, and also a company called Plasco that had this concept of developing a, a demonstration plant in Ottawa to take trash and convert it to energy. We're not talking about Plasco. We're talking about a different company called Omni Technologies. And it closed a $35 million deal that could see its system and technology used in California. Uh, Dave, tell us a little bit more about uh, the story. Um, yeah, Mike. Well, absolutely. Uh, as you said, Rod Bryden really needs really needs no introduction. I mean, uh, the 
you know, he um, he was the face of the Ottawa Senators for a long time, for, for quite a while. He's uh, been involved in a ton of other businesses in town. Uh, he's 80 years young and still going strong. Uh, says he's still up every morning, 5.30, doing calls till 1 in the morning. I mean, he has more energy than most people half his age. And now he's pouring it into Omni, which really is, it's the rebranded version of the former Plasco. Um, when I talked to uh, Rod back in the um, late last year, he said he just kind of wanted to put the history of Plasco behind him. Uh, we all know the background of that. They had a demonstration plant set up at the city of Ottawa. They ran into some financing trouble, uh, filed for creditor protection. Now they're back and they feel like they're better than ever and really have perfected this energy uh, or this technology rather that converts uh, waste, trash, um, municipal garbage into, um, uh, into energy. It uses a high temperature plasma gas that then allows, um, it, um, it, it allows for easier creation of, um, of green hydrogen and other um, potential real, um, real groundbreaking, um, you know, potential new energy sources for the future. And they've, uh, they've signed on uh, their first customer, uh, and that's the Larson and Lamb Climate Initiative. That's a nonprofit foundation led by uh, para-California philanthropist Chris Larson and Lynn Lamb. Uh, Larson is um, a billionaire tech entrepreneur from Silicon Valley whose real, uh, one of his real missions is to, is to uh, is, you know, he's, he's looking for renewable energy sources. And um, he heard about Omni through uh, Daniel Kamen, who's a renewable energy expert at the University of California, Berkeley. He, they got connect, he connected with, with Rod Bryden. Next thing you know, uh, he's signing a $35 million US deal to build one of Omni's plants uh, at an as yet um, unnamed uh, California location. So it will start converting uh, garbage to energy. Uh, they, they hope to have, uh, have the plan up and running by the end of 2023. So uh, Bryden's really hoping that this is kind of the, the first domino that falls and kind of starts the momentum growing to finally generate real revenue for this technology. It's been a long time coming. It's been, uh, this technology has been uh, 15 years in the making, really. So uh, we know that when it comes to green energy, uh, it, it's it's you're, you're, uh, very few companies are an overnight success. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, Brian really feels like finally um, the uh, former Plasco, now Omni's time has come and, uh, and he's really hoping for big things in the future. So um, we'll just, uh, we'll follow it closely and see where it goes, Mike. Yeah, it, it would be nice. As you indicated, the, the technology seems so innovative. Uh, way back when, it was too bad the demonstration plant uh, couldn't have been a, a bigger success. Um, but yeah, good luck. Good luck. And, and uh, you know, I think the it's the right time for this type of idea, right? I mean, there's no, no there's been no better time for this to happen. Listen, uh, Peter and Dave, before we go to our last story of the day, I want to bring in our legal expert from Nelligan Law, our sponsor behind the headlines. Jim Anstey is an associate lawyer with the Employment Law Group. Welcome to Jim. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. Jim, we're getting to the point uh, in this pandemic where uh, I'm being optimistic here that we might be, uh, employers that is, might be uh, willing to 
uh, recall employees to the office. The assumption is those employees are working from home, of course. So if an employer is getting closer to that point where they're going to ask an employee, stop working from home, work in the office now, what legal uh, or specifically employment law questions should they be considering? Well, first and foremost, we're really in a, I would say at the beginning of a transition period, perhaps are getting closer to a transition period that like you referred to, um, you know, where employees will start to come back to the office, um, certainly as the, the threat of COVID subsides. Um, the thing, I mean, employers have to realize and employees as well is we're in an extraordinary situation. Uh, in a normal course of, you know, employees would not uh, be allowed to work from home unless they're, you know, unless they had a, um, you know, an arrangement with their employer. Um, but with COVID, we're all mandated to work from home. Once, uh, you know, you know, once the the pandemic is over, or we get close to the end, and employees don't have to start working, don't have to work from home anymore. Um, we're going to be in a situation where, um, you know, the the pandemic threat has passed. And now we have employees in the, you know, uh, in, in our workforce uh, who are still working from home, perhaps. And the risk there is for uh, for employers is to make sure they don't, you know, let things, um, you know, don't let things uh, remain the same or uh, don't express their, uh, you know, their expectations for remote work um, and attending the office and all the things that go along with that. Uh, you know, not to delay that because, you know, if, you know, six months or a year passes and employees are still uh, working remotely as they were before doing whatever they want, there's going to be an expectation that that continues. Uh, and the risk there is that it becomes, you know, a fundamental part of your employment agreement that the employer can't later change. So what I'm telling employers is, you know, before we get to that transition period or as we get into that transition period, um, you know, make sure your employers, your employees understand uh, your expectations in terms of remote work, when you have to come to the office. Um, you know, remote work policies are a good idea now because we're all working remotely and employers do have some issues here and there with how that's going. Overall, it's going well. Um, but, you know, you, you do hear uh, complaints about certain things and that's best managed if the employees know the expectations um, you know, we've been developing some policies for employers along those lines to, to make that to make that work and reduce that risk going forward. Uh, you know, when remote work likely becomes, uh, you know, a real part of, of uh, work life. I like that advice. So don't, you know, don't use this time uh, and let it pass. Be proactive. Set some uh, set your expectations, as you said, about uh, if it is the case, an employer's intention to bring people back to the office. And uh, start crafting. I hear. I think I heard what uh, you say. A remote work policy now, so that um, so that employees have a little bit more context and and know what's coming down the pipe. Absolutely. I mean, you don't want to be in a situation where employees expect to be able to work from home whenever they want, because that's what's been happening now. And you know, when the pandemic is over, you know, right outside of this extraordinary legal situation. Uh, what the employer allows employees to do can can affect uh, you know the employment contract. Uh, so we need to be careful there. Thanks, Jim. Great advice. 
And that was Jim Anstey from Nelligan Law. Thanks for uh, their support of this show. Listen, the third and final story is an interesting one for me. I'm a little bit of a, a history buff, at least I'm interested in it. Uh, this story comes from OBJ contributor uh, Tom Van Dusen and is part of OBJ Regional, which is covering uh, Eastern Ontario. Uh, the story is about an entrepreneur who is working to turn a 200-year-old former windmill tower on the shores of the St. Lawrence Seaway into a symbol of cutting edge economic development. And the plan is to restore the building to generate, uh, regenerate the shoreline using a green design and construction technologies, and also create a hub for uh, social and environmental reasons. And it's not just a lot of talk. In fact, $2 million uh, has already been invested uh, into uh, this development. Peter, I'm going to go to you on this. The story is centered in a town of Maitland, a town I didn't know much about. I had to look it up on Google Maps. It's about five kilometers uh, east of uh, Brockville. Uh, but give us, uh, give us the details, Peter. Well, what's particularly fascinating about this storyline is that it's it's the latest example of an investor uh, from uh, outside outside the region, from a, a major urban center in this this case, that's uh, making a very large investment into a tourism operation in uh, in uh, east, eastern Ontario, um, and. You know, if you talk to the economic development officials right across the region, they've really identified this. They've circled this as a major opportunity for for communities uh, in their in their catchment areas. So, whether you're talking about you know wilderness or outdoor uh, adventure tourism opportunities, you know, in, in Renfrew County along the Ottawa River, or such as in this case, um, you know, breathing uh, new life, uh, giving a um, uh, new, 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 new ideas, new attractions in in really historic communities. Uh, the the, uh, the the these communities really do see a, an opportunity to uh, to increase their tourism sector on the strength of uh, these investments. So again, the story we're talking about, you know, today is centered in Maitland, but uh, it was just a couple months ago that uh, that we had a story about uh, two sisters, one from Vancouver, one from Montreal. Who purchased a former church in the town of Iroquois uh, with uh, with big plans to turn it into a uh, a new uh, hospitality center? So, uh, you know, again, if you if you zoom back, you know, uh, on a very high level, you do see some you, you do see the opportunity in the sense that this entire region is within easy driving distance of you know the Greater Toronto Area as well as Montreal, and of course, more broadly in tourism, we, we know that there's this appetite for a, a new wave of attractions, right? Experiential tourism, uh, something. A little bit different than uh, than uh, uh, you know what's uh, what's been traditionally on uh, on offer. So uh, so it is uh, an exciting uh, exciting trend to, to to watch to see if it does sort of you know uh, grow into a trend both uh, from an investor side as well as uh, from an economic development side uh, in uh, in a lot of these communities. Yeah, fingers crossed, and uh, you know tourism after the pandemic will be. You know, uh, more important than ever. Uh, e even the summer, potentially. I know the project's not going to be done that time soon, but just to have uh, kind of that uh, rubber road or whatever they call it, rubber tire market. Uh, Peter, we're going to start wrapping up. Um, let's go to you to give us a sense of a couple projects we're working on. Yeah, so just briefly, two two quick things. So uh, really exciting this week, uh, we're officially launching the start of our annual OAX uh, survey process. So this is a project that's really focused in on the associations and not-for-profit uh, space. So again, we know that uh, here in our community and as well right across the, the country, associations and not-for-profits play a vital role. They're a major you know, industry upon themselves. And this is a project that we do every year with our partner Otis Group that really takes the pulse of the sector. So we're asking associations 
education executives to uh, to participate in this survey. It's a great opportunity for them to benchmark their operations against their peers, but as well make their voice heard and share uh, both the challenges as well as the opportunities that both their own organization as well as the industry as a large is facing. So if you are an association executive, we really encourage you to visit obj.ca, scroll down to the uh, events tab. That's where we put a link to the survey and definitely please do make your uh, voice heard. And the uh, the other event I just wanted to highlight is that we have our latest in a series of webinars coming up uh, this uh, this Wednesday. So, you know, as you were just uh, sort of alluding to in your conversation uh, with, uh, with with Jim, um, you know, fingers crossed, you know, it feels like we're on the cusp of a max, mass vaccine rollout, uh, which is, of course, spectacular news. But for employers, that really means that now is the time to start planning about what a return to work might look like for your organization. And, you know, we've done a lot of our own polling, our own surveys, and talked to a lot of experts. There's a lot of predictions out there that uh, suggest that we're going to be looking at a hybrid workforce where some people are working in an office, some people are working from home. And that's really going to put um, uh, a bit of pressure on employers to uh, figure out how they're going to adapt that and uh, I mean, make sure that they have all the tools and setups in place to encourage collaboration. Um, so we have a webinar coming up this Wednesday with our partners, Interactive Audiovisual. It's There's still time to register. Again, please go to obj.ca slash events. You'll find uh, the link and more information about uh, about that. Well, thank you, Peter, for your uh, all your insights. And to you too, Dave, we're going to start wrapping this up. It brings us to the end of this uh, episode. A reminder that you can watch or listen to this podcast in a variety of ways. Uh, on YouTube, uh, we ask that you like, subscribe, and click the bell so you get notifications about when we're posting uh, videos. You can also listen uh, to this podcast on platform platforms such as Spotify, Apple, SoundCloud, Twitch, Google's in there uh, somewhere too. And of course, I encourage you to visit obj.ca website throughout the weekdays for regular updates. And again, one more recommendation, subscribe to OBJ Today, which is our weekday email newsletter. Once again, you can go to obj.ca and go to newsletter slash sign up uh, and, uh, and you can sign up. On behalf of my colleagues, uh, Peter and David, that's it for this week's episode. Uh, stay healthy. Hope to see you really soon. Bye-bye.